On Friday, the 45th President of the United States took the oath of office. Standing in front of the Capitol building, the new President held up his right hand, placed his left hand on a Bible, and was asked by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court to speak these words. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of the President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. This oath and its precise wording is specified in the Constitution itself and has been spoken by every president since George Washington. In addition, although it is not constitutionally required, nearly every incoming president, after taking the oath, has followed it with these words, So help me God. It is quite timely that this event should have taken place just this week, because as we continue the next passage in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks about swearing oaths. If we look at Matthew 5.34, Jesus says this, But I say to you, do not swear at all. One of the questions we will have of the text is, does Jesus mean this to be a blanket statement which prohibits the swearing of oaths in every situation? Or is it possible that there may be occasions where it is permissible? Now, it is unlikely that anyone here will be called upon to take the oath of office as the United States president. But what if we are called upon to serve as a juror and we are asked to take an oath? Or if we are called upon to serve as a witness in a court case and we are asked, this, do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? How do we respond to such a request in light of Jesus' words that say, do not swear at all? To answer this, let's go, please, to Matthew five thirty-three, And there we read the following. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. <clears throat> Jesus opens this passage about swearing oaths with the same introductory phrase that we have heard several times before. Specifically, you have heard it said. And we now know when Jesus uses this phrase, he is referring to what was taught by the scribes and teachers of the law. These religious leaders were teaching a version of the law that no longer reflected God's law. It had been interpreted and reinterpreted and added on to so many times over the centuries that in many ways it no longer reflected God's will but man's fallen agenda. If we peek ahead to the first few words of verse 32, Jesus begins with the phrase, but I say to you. He is making yet another correction, but he is not going to correct the law. 
because God's law is perfect. He is going to correct the mistaken beliefs taught by the religious leaders and practiced by the people. Let's also remember a key point that Jesus is making in this section. The scribes had led the people to believe that it was possible to be sufficiently righteous to earn one's way into heaven. But in the section that we are now in, referred to as the six antitheses, Jesus wants to show how impossible it really is. He has shown that while people may have been congratulating themselves and thinking themselves righteous because they had not broken God's commandments, such as the commandments prohibiting murder and adultery, well, they had better think again. Because if they have ever been angry at their brother, well, then they deserve the judgment of God. Righteousness is not just a matter of the flesh, it's a matter of the heart. It's not just about following the letter of the law, but following the spirit of the law. And so let's look again at verse 33 as I explain the error that the religious leaders were teaching. Again, Jesus says that the people had heard it said, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. The quote that Jesus gives here will not be found with these exact words in the Old Testament. It is instead the result of several Old Testament passages regarding oaths that have been compressed into one statement. Like the other teachings that Jesus has identified in this section, this also is theologically sound, and that is because it does come from God's word. But as we will see, what had become corrupt was the way this scriptural principle was being applied, or perhaps better to say, misapplied. There are some 30 oaths that there are some 30 passages in the Old Testament that provide instruction about taking oaths. And we cannot possibly explore them all this morning, but let's have a look at two examples because they are very similar to the compressed teaching that Jesus cites here. At Numbers 30, verse 2, it says this, If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And let's look also at Leviticus 19.12. Leviticus 19.12 says this, And you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. As we look at these verses, an important question we may have is, why does the scripture give these and other teachings about the swearing of oaths and vows? The answer is actually quite simple. God knows the heart of man. He knows that given our sin nature, we are predisposed to lying, 
and breaking our promises. Therefore, because of mankind's wicked ways, God made a necessary accommodation to provide guidelines for when solemn agreements must be made. When such agreements were made, the parties were to call upon God to be a witness as the parties swore an oath before the Lord. The reason vows and oaths were to be sworn before God is so that if one of the parties broke their vow, they were breaking their vow with God himself. And to break that vow is to invite God's wrath. And even more serious than breaking a vow is making a vow that one does not intend to fulfill. And for those who engage in such deceit and do so while swearing in God's name would invite the most severe of divine punishments because that is taking the Lord's name in vain. That is the third of the Ten Commandments. So let's go back to our study verses and look again, please, at Matthew 5, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. This accurately reflects the two Old Testament passages we just read. But the problem is that this teaching had become so twisted and so distorted that most of Israel was using it to support their deceitful ways. John MacArthur explains that there were two problems that had evolved in Israel by the time of Jesus. The first problem was that oaths were used in virtually every situation. They were used so often that they began to lose their value. Instead of being a mark of integrity, an oath had become a mark of deceit. Instead of prompting confidence, they prompted skepticism. I don't know if you've ever seen the TV show Cops. The show follows real police officers as they do their job. Most of the scenes start as traffic stops, and the driver is sometimes told to step out of the car, and the officer will ask, do you have any drugs in the car? Well, the driver insists, I I don't have any drugs, I swear to God. It is remarkable how many people on that show who have heroin or crack or some other drug, invoke the name of God in attempt to make their lie sound more convincing. But I get the impression that for most cops, the more a person swears to God or the more that person swears on their mother's grave, the more likely they have something to hide. The second problem that evolved in Israel and Jesus addresses is more serious. We may find this difficult to believe, but the teachers of the law 
emphasized a twisted aspect, or actually they twisted the law in order to have it say something it never intended to say. According to Matthew 5.33, the scribes taught, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But what they also taught is that if you swore an oath, but you did not swear the oath in the Lord's name, that is, to the Lord, you were not obligated to fulfill it. And so the people were taught that if they invoke something or someone other than God and his name, they were not obligated to fulfill their vows. And if we look at verse 34, we will see three examples where Jesus says the people were using. For now, we'll just pull out the key phrases. At 34, Jesus says, But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, if we go to verse 35, nor by earth, and a little further, nor by Jerusalem. We'll consider the reasons in a moment why Jesus says they are not to swear by those substitute phrases. But here what we're seeing is Jesus gives three examples of substitute phrases, and those are far from exhaustive. These were used in an attempt to convince others how serious and trustworthy was their statement or their vow. They were words that were meant to give the oath maker an air of piousness or sincerity. It allowed them to skirt the name of God, but use religious-sounding language. Now, this practice continues today as a modern example of avoiding the name of God, but using pious language. I imagine that we've all heard, heard someone say very solemnly, I swear on a stack of Bibles, or my hand to heaven, I'm telling you the truth. But the question might be asked, why would the scribes and teachers of the law practice and teach what appear to be strategies for intentional deception? Well, we have to remember that they are the definition of legalists. And what legalists do is to focus on the letter of the law while they ignore the spirit of the law. The problem with legalists is that, like any good lawyer, they are always looking for loopholes to exploit, even if they have to twist the law to invent these loopholes. And so they were concerned about offending God, and so they would be careful not to swear oaths in the Lord's name. But clearly, they were largely unconcerned with offending their neighbor. They seemed to have very little concern about with conducting themselves with lies. But now another question might arise. Why didn't people quickly learn 
that if someone swore an oath to anything other than God himself, to just outright reject that vow because they would suspect it as a as a, an attempt to deceive. Well, to answer that, let's look at Matthew 23, verse 15 and following. And there, Jesus says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obligated to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obligated to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. What Jesus is referring to here is the oral law, a collection of teaching, teachings and traditions that came from the rabbis, obviously not from God. And as you might have guessed, it was impossibly complex. When this oral law, or the oral law, was later written down in the 3rd century A.D., This voluminous work, known as the Mishnah, included an entire section devoted just to oaths and vow-making. As Jesus demonstrates here, according to this oral tradition, someone could swear by the temple, and it was nothing, meaning they were not obligated to keep their vow. But if they swore by the gold of the temple, Well, that did put you under obligation. Now think about this extreme irony of this man-made teaching. Many were avoiding swearing oaths in God's name and using substitute phrases in order to disguise their deceit. And for what purpose? They were afraid that lying in God's name would jeopardize their supposed self-righteousness. I suppose they rationalized and excused their behavior by saying, saying the very same things we hear today. Things like, well, lying is a part of business. You've got to expect some lying in politics. It's the way of the world. You've got to fight fire with fire. And all the while, Ignoring the fact that God wants the truth. Ignoring the fact that Scripture says very clearly, God hates lying lips. Their corrupted use of vows and oaths did not secure the truth. It encouraged more and more deception. 
It shows how true the scripture is that says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And so we cannot save ourselves by the law. We are saved by grace through faith. Let's look now at Jesus' correction, starting at verse 34. Matthew 5, verse 34. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. Let's return to the question we asked earlier. Does Jesus mean to introduce a blanket statement in which all swearing of vows or oaths is prohibited? Or does this refer to something more narrow, such as do not swear at all if you're going to use substitute phrases, such as swearing by heaven or by Jerusalem? Many have taken Jesus' words to mean the former, that all swearing is prohibited. For that reason, some have refused to swear an oath in court, and fortunately, our legal system accommodates those who object on scriptural grounds and gives the option of affirming that you are telling the truth. But just a moment's reflection will reveal that the difference between swearing an oath or affirming an oath is really no difference at all because both imply that up until the moment that you gave your oath, you were a hopeless liar. But back to the issue at hand. In one sense, we can be sure that Jesus means that there should be no swearing at all. That is the standard of kingdom righteousness. It is what God wants and expects. Jesus wants us, while we are among fellow Christians, that there should be no need for oaths at all. And when Christ's kingdom is fully implemented and all sin is removed and all lying and deception with it, there will be no need for oaths. But what about while we're still on this earth? Should we abstain from all vows and oaths? If that is the case, what about the practice of the wedding vow, where a couple is asked to pledge their faithfulness as they promise to love and to cherish one another from this day forward until death do us part. And so how should we understand Jesus' words? Let me repeat. For those who advocate that Jesus is calling for a blanket prohibition, I would say that this is certainly an acceptable view. But I am not sure it is the best view. Allow me to explain why. First, let's recall what Jesus clearly stated earlier in the same chapter. He declared that he had not come to destroy or repeal the law. 
He had come to fulfill it. He further said he would not change the smallest letter nor even the smallest brush stroke. And we know why. Because God's law is perfect. That would indicate that the problem is not with the Old Testament law regarding oaths, but the way the law is applied. As we've already seen, number two, as we've already seen, the Old Testament does provide specific guidelines for the swearing of oaths. I think it would be fair to say that the swearing of oaths is not what God wants, but in his divine wisdom, he saw that it was necessary to make accommodation because of the falling fallen nature of men's hearts. And so that when oaths were made, they were to be made in God's name, and when they were made, they must be fulfilled. The third thing we need to keep in mind is that we have evidence of vows being used, not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we see the Apostle Paul preface some of his statements with the language of vows and oaths. At Romans 1.9, the Apostle writes this, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing... I make mention of you always in my prayers. And this from Romans 9.1. I tell the truth. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. In both of these passages, Paul is swearing with God as his witness that he is telling the truth. If Paul thought that Jesus repealed the law and prohibited all vows, we wouldn't expect Paul to write these words. And so why then would the apostle use this kind of language? The most likely answer is that the Romans didn't know Paul. When Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, he wrote, while he was in Corinth, in Greece, Paul had not yet been to Rome, and so he was unknown there. He was unknown to the Romans. And so he vows with God as his witness that what he writes in the letter is the truth. And so this may suggest that there may be certain occasions when an oath remains permissible, perhaps even advisable. That is, in settings where we are not personally known. In this setting, in church, where we know each other and we have witnessed one another's relationship with Christ, we wouldn't expect one another to swear an oath that we're telling the truth, nor should we swear one. We can take one another at their word. But what of those occasions where obtaining the truth is of vital importance and we and our character are unknown? 
it is understandable that in this fallen world, in certain circumstances, such as in the court of law, where another person's future hangs in the balance, and we are asked to be jurists or witnesses, that we would be asked to swear an oath. And there is, there is Old Testament support for this. According to Deuteronomy 23.23, oaths are, for the most part, voluntary. But the law does give at least two occasions where the swearing of an oath is mandatory. When giving testimony to a judge, Exodus 22.11, or to a priest, Numbers 5.19. If we do find ourselves in a court of law, we could object, as we are called upon to swear an oath, and that is because as followers of Christ, we know that our God is the God of all truth, and therefore he expects us to speak the truth at all times, not just in court. If it is the case that after considering these points, we choose to swear an oath in certain settings, like a court of law, where we are unknown, let's ask this. What then does the law require? Well, it requires two things. Most importantly, the scripture tells us, swear your oaths to God. We must never swear by any object and certainly not by any other name. And secondly, when we make our oath, we must fulfill our oath. Let's return to verse 34 and following, because Jesus explains to the scribes and Pharisees why they were not to play their games by swearing to objects. Verse 34, but I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. Jesus gives four examples where he corrects the practice of swearing oaths to a substitute, rather than swearing an oath in God's name. And so, in the first example, Jesus says, do not swear by heaven. And the reason he gives is, for it is God's throne. Similarly, Jesus says, if you think you can swear by the earth, think again, because the earth is God's footstool. Using figurative language, Jesus likens the earth to God's hassock, the, the place where God rests his feet. And why does Jesus speak of the earth as God's footstool? For the simple reason that the earth and everything in it belongs to him. The same is true about Jerusalem. While some may have taken to swearing to Jerusalem, they may have overlooked an important fact. Jerusalem is the city of the great king, meaning it too belongs to God. The fourth example, found in verse 36, Jesus warns against those who swore by their head. To say, I swear by my head, was the equivalent of saying, I swear by my life. But 
Jesus' point in this illustration is to show that our head does not belong to us. And the reason? Because it too, like our life, belongs to God. And so the point of all these examples is exactly the same. The practice of using substitutes to avoid God's name is not only dishonest, it is an exercise in futility. And that is because everything belongs to God, and therefore everything points to God. To call upon a part of his creation, be it Jerusalem or a stack of Bibles, in order to hide a dishonest vow, dishonors God. Every lie, every false oath, whether it invokes God's name or not, dishonors God and his holy name. And so while this passage is clearly meant to correct the wicked practice of making false vows, there is a bigger overarching point, and it is this. In the conduct of our daily lives, we should always speak the simple truth. We should have no need for vows and oaths. Jesus says at verse 37, But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. It is here we see the importance of letting the way we conduct our lives speak for us. No amount of promises, oaths, vows, or contracts are going to do a bit of good if we don't follow up on our promises. I think that the most valuable thing that any of us can possess is our reputation. The most valuable compliment that we can be paid is when someone speaks about us and they say about us, he is a man of his word. She is a woman of integrity. Our reputation for living the truth requires a continuous commitment. It requires hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And when we conduct our lives as citizens of the kingdom rather than of this world, when we say yes, people will know that we mean yes. And when we say no, people will know that we mean no. Anything beyond this, Jesus says, comes from the evil one. There is no question to whom Jesus is referring when he speaks about the evil one. He's referring to the devil. And the Bible tells us that not only is the devil a liar, he is the father of lies. But if we belong to Christ, then we have God as our father. And as the children of God, let us put away falsehood and all things untrue. We are citizens of his kingdom. And therefore, as the salt of the earth, as the light of the world, let us, with the power of Christ, with hearts renewed by faith, let us reflect the words of David 
who prayed in the 15th Psalm. Lord, who may abide, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, help us to be more like you with every passing day as we live according to the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but your truth. Amen.